Great to see you today. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning on campus. And if you're joining us online, we're thrilled you've joined us. Good morning. Good to see you. In 1875, a woman was born. Her name was Mary. But both of her parents had been slaves. At the age of five, Mary began to take her education seriously and attended a one-room school, segregated school in South Carolina. She took a real interest in her own education. When she graduated, she took the huge leap of faith and traveled to Chicago, Illinois, where she attended Moody Bible Institute. After she graduated from Moody, she returned to the South where she began to teach. But she wasn't done yet because she believed God had placed a special call on her life. She believed she was to found a college in the South for other young African-Americans so they could get a first-rate education and step into the extraordinary plan and purposes of God for their lives. So in 1904, at the age of 29, Daytona, Florida, Mary Bethune founded what is today Bethune-Cookman University. For two decades, she used her remarkable skill and inspiration to, to keep her students engaged and dreaming big dreams to overcome their own obstacles, fight their own battles, and win. Every year at the commencement exercises at Bethune-Cookman, she would stand to her feet and she would challenge the graduates with the same statement. I want to share that statement with us this morning. I'll put it on the screen for you. She said, faith ought not be a puny thing. If you believe, have faith like a giant. And may God not grant you peace, but glory. Now, this was Mary Bethune's way of saying to her students, you can have an easy life or you can have a great life. You can have a comfortable life or you can have a glorious life, but you can't have both. You can have a life that's full of peace and comfort and ease, and convenience, and predictability, or you can have a glorious life, but you can't have both. I wonder today if you might have the boldness, the courage, the audacity to ask the question, maybe as a prayer, God, have you called me to safe, to convenient, to comfortable, or to glory. What life do you imagine God has called you to? And of course, the answer to this question will determine if our God will be known in our world. And if the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ will be delivered to your loved ones, your neighbors, your associations, your community, indeed to the ends of the earth. Now, if you believe that you are here as I do, believe that we are here to do something glorious for the kingdom of God, then there's a question we need to answer. And the, the question is, what does glory look like in the kingdom of God? It's a great question. If you look at the screen at John's Gospel, chapter 12, this is Jesus. He replied, he said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. There's that word. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, 
it produces many seeds. Jesus said, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. So, Father, glorify your name. Jesus comes to the hour to be glorified, and he doesn't address his power. He doesn't address his miracles. He doesn't even address his resurrection. When he comes to the hour that's pertaining to glorified, he talks about his death. He says to his disciples, boys, you want to see what glory looks like? Then open your eyes. It's about to be on display. See, in the kingdom of God, glory looks like a man who has been shredded with a cat of nine tails. In the kingdom of God, glory looks like a man who has had a crown of thorns pressed into his head so that he's blinded by his own blood. In the kingdom of God, it looks like a man hanging on a cross and dying for the sins of the world. It looks like a man who would rather die than be unfaithful to his father. It looks like a man who would rather die than be unfaithful to his mission. Let me say a word about our mission here at Union Chapel. I can tell you why we exist as a church. Why are we in business? Why do we do what we do? It's in three parts. You already know the answer. We rehearse them every week in one form or another. We use three words. Everyone can remember them. The words are know, grow, and go. This is why we exist, to help people know Jesus Christ. We, we encourage everyone who participates in our church to attend our services, either in person or online. And we invite you to know Jesus. This is the best means we have to encourage you to find a meaningful relationship with God through Jesus Christ, to know him. We also invite you to grow in your relationship with Jesus. We believe that the best way to grow in relationship with Jesus is by sharing your life with people who share your values and worldview. And so we encourage everyone, the practical practice that we encourage everyone to participate in is to join a small group, some kind of fellowship circle, community, some connection point, so that you can share the journey with like-minded people. It's the best way to transform your life and grow. And then the third piece is to go, making Jesus known to others. And in that context, the practical step, the application is to serve, to volunteer in the ministries in our church and our missions outside of our church, to volunteer and serve. It matters. What you do matters. And God's called us all uniquely to make a difference in the lives of other people through service. I have a philosophy about local church ministry. I think that service, the service component, the volunteerism, that that should be at such a level that no matter what the area of need is in the church, that there should be a waiting list for people to volunteer to serve. Every area should be fully staffed, fully volunteered with a waiting list. You say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, it may seem ridiculous to you, but if we're all in, that should be the evidence of it. Could I just push you a little harder about that? Perhaps it's time that some of you at least take off your bib. You know the one that's been collecting that food particle that comes from being spoon-fed so far your whole life and your Christian life? 
and the dribble that falls on your bib, time to take off your bib and put on an apron, a service apron, so that you can get busy and do some work. Some folks have said that COVID, COVID has damaged the church. I think COVID hasn't damaged the church. COVID has revealed the church. This is who the church really is. And it's time for some to step forward. So glory in the kingdom of God looks like a man willing to die. The most shameful and painful death the Roman Empire can devise so that unwanted and unworthy people like you and like me will know that there's a God who loves them and that our sins can be forgiven and that we can find a transformed and new life made possible because of our connection with Jesus Christ. That's where an amen goes in the sermon. Last weekend, Robin Wood, our church planning director, was preaching in another church here in Indiana and was introduced to a man named Robert Reese. Robert is a Bible translator and church planter in India. As Robin got acquainted, he told him how they struggled to plant churches until they learned the important step of interpreting the New Testament and the book of Genesis in the native language of the people group they're trying to reach. They said they struggled for, for years, failed four times at planting churches, but realized after interpreting the scripture, the New Testament and the book of Genesis, they've been able to plant 22 churches in India. They're currently working in a, in a region of India where there's a, a collection of about 100,000 people in this sect, this group, bound together by their culture and language, that they're translating the Bible now into their language and should be completed by the end of the year. I, I, if you get to know Robin a little bit and hear him tell some stories, you will, you will learn that, that God has given Robin a special ability to run into people who want to plant churches. Everywhere he goes, he's like a magnet for people interested in this kind of strategy. And you may be interested to know that we are currently, we Union Chapel and our team are currently coaching 26 church planters here and there. And that number is growing. It's like a snowball going down the hill. Then Robin asked Robert Reese if he had a family. And Robert said, well, that's kind of a sad part of my story. And Robin, and Robin began to speculate in his own mind what that might mean. Maybe his wife has died or uh, he's been through the brokenness of a divorce or something like that. But he said, no, he said, when I was in Bible translation school many years ago, I met a woman and we fell in love and we were making plans to be married But he said it didn't work out. And Robin said he was looking him right in the eyes and he was saying, telling the story very warmly. But it still was very moving to Robin because he thought, well, gosh, something horrible has happened. And this was his quote from Robert Reese. He said, I fell in love with this woman who was also in translating school. She was the love of my life. And she deeply felt the call of God to translate in Africa. And I had no doubt God had called me to India. When he said that, Robin is an emotional kind of person. He began to tear up, and Robert Reese said to him, no, no, don't be sad. He said, we prayed diligently about it and were convinced that this is what God wanted for us. We didn't want to disappoint God, so she went to Africa, and I went to India. 
Can you feel that? Can you feel that? Robin was telling this story in our staff meeting this past week, and when he concluded this statement from Robert Reese, Robin then rehearsed a verse at the end of Hebrews chapter 11, where the writer of Hebrews is rehearsing these great saints of old, many of whom were martyred for the sake of the faith. And then a summary statement in seven words at the end of Hebrews 11 simply said, the world was not worthy of them. Men and women too devout, too pure of heart, too singular-minded and focused to actually exist in the world in which we live. So off to heaven they go. The world was not worthy of them. There are men and women like that in our midst. Let me put this statement on the screen for us. Glory looks like sacrifice. It looks like paying a price. It looks like dying for something you believe in. It looks like being willing to suffer for the glory of God by bringing his grace into the world. There was a time in the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul when he was being questioned. His authority, his apostolic authority, his credentials were being questioned by the church at Corinth. It's curious because Paul had led most of the Corinthians to Jesus to begin with, And in the meantime, very impressive men had come to Corinth to teach teach in the church. Paul refers to these guys as super apostles. You know, it's almost tongue-in-cheek. He's almost being sarcastic. Well, when these super apostles came through, they were men that Paul referred to, uh, and we know that they were smart, articulate, impressive. They were trained in the culture. You know, they had a certain gravitas about them. They They were just cool. And they came through, and they were impressing the church at Corinth. And the Corinthians were comparing these super teachers with Paul, and Paul wasn't measuring up because we know that tradition suggests that Paul was not particularly a big guy, wasn't a very handsome guy. You know, he's kind of all bent over and crooked from years of life and service. And they began to think, well, maybe these super apostles, these really cool guys that have come through, this is the new standard for greatness. This is what impressive looks like. Maybe this is the new standard for glory. And so Paul finds himself in this strange position of having to provide a compelling resume for his own ministry. So Paul says to them, well, you want, you want my credentials? You want me to understand why my ministry is apostolic, why it is great, why it is glorious, why I can be trusted? And this is what he said. Five times I was given 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Three times I was shipwrecked. I was stoned by an angry mob and left for dead. Many times I've gone without sufficient food or water. Many nights I could not sleep because I was worried about you crying out to God on your behalf. These are my credentials as an apostle. Do you know what what makes a ministry great? What makes it glorious? It is a man or it is a woman pouring out their own lives, suffering and sacrifices for the name of Jesus and the sake of others. That's what it looks like. There's no other way to live a glorious life in the kingdom of God than through suffering and sacrifice. How many of you glad you came today? I mean, just, you're just thrilled about it. I mean, really, this, I'm so glad. This is so encouraging today. I'm going to leave here so joyful. 
you do appreciate that this is not a sermon uh, that's at an elementary level. This is not Christianity 101. This is Christianity 401. Not peace, but glory. Really? Try to absorb as much as you can. That's how we overcome, by the way. That's how we impact a darkened culture, by giving our lives away through sacrifice and suffering to the glory of God. I want to suggest to you that our culture today is very similar to the first century Roman culture. Let me explain. The Roman culture was hedonistic. It was a culture that worshipped power. It was a culture that was cynical about religion. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yes, they, they had their gods. They had their formalities. They were pagan. They had their gods. They had their hierarchy. But no one looked to their gods for meaning or purpose or ultimate value. They looked to their gods in a utilitarian way. They saw their gods as complementary. You know, we, we, we like control. We like power. We like social status. We like material things. We like to do whatever we want and somehow get the blessing of our gods in the meantime. So gods for the Romans were gods that you appeased, a typical pagan kind of environment where you appease gods, you act religious once in a while, you, you, uh, you maybe go to the particular temple representing your god or, or, or you, know, you show up to a church once in a while. But it's not really essentially important. It's just a matter of getting favor or getting a blessing or getting some kind of uh, uh, important promotion uh, by God's favor, the God you serve. For the Roman, serving in a religious way only, only meant that it allowed me to live my best life now. And by the way, if someone says that to me in any kind of positive context again, I'm going to lose my mind, my best life now. There's a whole sermon, I, there's a whole series of sermons I could preach about that for another day, another happy day like this. <laughs> for the, for the Rome, Romans, life was cheap. Babies born unwanted because of handicap or deformity or because they were female gender were routinely left in the woods or left in the city dumps to die of exposure, consumed by wild beasts. This was common practice. People would do this and there was no stigma attached, negative stigma attached to you. You could, with impunity, destroy the life of your child. The Romans did it after the baby was born. We just do it before they were born. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In this heated debate, by the way, of Roe v. Wade, I don't know about you, but I have not personally heard one liberal progressive voice in all the banter and vitriol around the overturning of Roe v. Wade say something like, of course babies are valuable and precious and we should always value them, but instead... All I have heard is in these categories. Number one, women and their rights must be protected at all costs. Or two, there are going to be negative economic consequences. Women now who have to carry their baby to term and raise these children as single mothers are going to be harsh economic realities that come to their lives and people around their lives. A third is that the men now who conceive these babies will have to take responsibility for their fatherhood. When I heard that, I said, oh, God, no, <laughs> not that. 
How can we possibly tolerate men having to take responsibility for any part of this process? Mind-boggling. You note my sarcasm. This was the culture that this early sect, this small band of Christ followers encountered in the first century. Now think about this, follow it. They had no political power, these early Christians, no social capital, no cultural cachet. They were primarily uneducated and poor, and worst of all, they claimed a crucified Messiah. Now try to imagine the cultural context here. Crucifixion in the Roman world, in the Roman culture, was the lowest, most demeaning, most debased form of the extinguishment of life. It was the epitome of weakness and foolishness for a Roman. And this is who they proclaimed to be Lord, to an empire that worshiped power. This is not working. And yet the most amazing thing happened. The most amazing thing happened within 300 years, the Roman emperor, a man named Constantine, declared that he now had faith in Jesus Christ. We, su- we suspect that his mother led him to Christ. And within four centuries, the empire had made Christianity the official religion. Historians estimate that as many as half of all the residents within the Roman Empire had a personal faith in Christ within 400 years. Amazing. Remarkable. And it begs the second question of the day. The first question being, what does glory in the kingdom of God look like? And the second question is, how in the world did Christianity take over the Roman Empire within four centuries? How did that happen? It's a great question. How did this group of nobodies, no clout, no power, no status, no social or political connections, how did they overcome, how did they conquer, how did they transform their entire culture? And the answer is pretty straightforward. They did it by living the way Jesus lived, by loving and serving the way Jesus did. And when they were persecuted and executed and martyred, they did did it by dying the way Jesus did. And so we have to ask the question today, how did they love and serve and sacrifice? How did they do this? Well, for example, when babies were discarded because of deformity or their gender, something you may not know about Roman culture in the first century, that 50%, there were 50% more boys in Roman households than girls because of this practice. They would go out at night, these Christians, into the woods or to the garbage dumps, and they would listen for the whimpering of the babies. They would rescue them, take them home, raise them, or give their short lives the dignity they deserved. In times of plagues, when the Roman custom was to take those who were hopelessly ill and leave them in the streets, Christians would not only care for those ill and their families, but would find the dispossessed in the streets and take them home and care for them, often contracting the disease and dying themselves. They gave welfare, financial assistance to believers and non-believers alike. They, they, were, they, they gave also financial assistance to women. The Roman government only gave uh, this sort of substance to men. They were faithful in their marriage vows. It's a shocking practice. They were kind to their children, prioritizing them in their lives. Upside down. They loved their enemies. And the most amazing thing happened 
these power-hungry, hedonistic, cynical Romans looked at this despised sect, this band of nobodies, and they saw something. They saw life. They saw meaning. They saw purpose. They saw hope. They saw the life that God intended for all of us manifested in these humble early servants and the empty Romans only living for pleasure and power were provoked to jealousy by the quality of the life these Christians were living. They said, if there is a power, if there is a person, if there is a God who can produce that quality of life, then I want that power, I want that person, I want that God. And so the one who had been despised and forsaken and rejected became treasured and embraced in love. The glory and grandeur of Rome began to pale in the light of the glory of God manifested in the people who followed Jesus. And this is the greatness and the grandness and the glory of a man hanging on a cross. The one despised has now been proclaimed Lord He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Amazing. Now, friends, I don't believe we will get our culture's ear by preaching better sermons or building nicer buildings or coming up with more clever marketing schemes to attract people to our churches. Rather, we will get the attention of culture when we start crying out for those kids aging out of the foster care system. 60% of whom will be dead, homeless, or in jail within two years of finishing high school. Christians, yeah, they're, they're the ones feeding children and families and the homeless by the hundreds every week through ministries like Blood and Fire, Inside Out. Christians, they're the ones building recovery homes for men transitioning from a life of addiction and reclaiming their sanity and their dignity and their families and their careers. Christians, they're the ones who actually care for, in a meaningful, practical way, single mothers. means people who love and care and sacrifice for the sake of others in the name of Jesus Christ. There's only one road to a glorious life. It's through suffering and sacrifice. I'm convinced the only way we'll impact our culture significantly is when people see Christians whose lives are about love and compassion and service, when the one thing that a society knows about Christians is not that we're judgmental or angry or condemning or arrogant or self-righteous or vote a certain way, but when the one thing they know about us for sure is that we are a community of compassion where we care more, we love more, we serve more, we sacrifice more than anyone else on the planet. I think that When people listen to us, then people will come to believe in the one we proclaim. And just maybe when we have done everything we can, something glorious with our lives, then people will respond to this hopeful message. I think it's easier to preach better sermons or build bigger buildings or win political battles. And frankly, that's okay because we're not called to easy. We're not called to safe. We're not called to convenient. We're not called to comfortable. We're called to glory. That's the life God has called us to. Let me put this uh, statement on the screen for you. I want you to to take it home with you. 
It's going to be hard to minister to this culture in a way that matters. Now, that's an understatement. It's hard. It's going to be hard to sort the cultural, political, and generational landscape. I'm telling you, as a leader in the church for over 40 years, these days are difficult. They're very challenging. It's going to be hard to stay faithful, stay committed, stay focused. But that's okay because we've not been called to easy, to safe, or to comfortable. We've been called to glory. That's it. That's who we are. That's what we do. Let me tell you in conclusion about Alan Bozaks. He's a South African pastor and theologian who fought against apartheid, was asked about the final judgment. He said, maybe the final judgment will be different than most of us imagine. Perhaps we will all stand before Jesus and he'll look at us and say, where are your scars? And we'll look at him and see his hands and his feet and his side. And then we will look at ourselves and say, but Lord, we have no scars. And Jesus will say, was there nothing worth fighting for? Was there nothing worth sacrificing for? Was there nothing worth dying for? Dare we say, dare we pray a prayer like this, that Lord, I'm not willing to scar anyone, but I'm willing to be scarred for Jesus' sake. I'm willing to suffer. I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to expend my life for the faith once delivered to the saints, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of hope to the whole world. I'm willing to do that. Now let's come full circle and finish where we began. Look at the screen with me. Mirror remind us, you and I have difficult things to do, but that's okay. Because remember the words from Mary Bethune. Faith ought not to be a puny thing. If you believe, have faith like a giant. And may God not grant you peace, but glory. Now let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? I want you, I'd like you to pause just for a moment. Pause in thought. Pause in silence. What have you heard today? What has God said to you about your life? about your witness. About your sacrifice. Now Lord, I pray speak speak to us. Your servants are listening. And may you grant us not peace, but glory. And this kind of bold praying is prayed in the name of Jesus and for his sake. And the people said, amen. Would you stand with us?